Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Unless you're doing a creative writing course where someone's forcing you to write, people fall away in droves. I think it's because the way that we analyze literature, we don't think about the sucky first draft. Um, I think that's one of Anne, Anne Lamott's mm-hmm. greatest gifts to the creative world is the phrase, the shitty first draft. Yeah. Um, it's And it's easy to say it and it's easy to understand intellectually uh-huh. that you need to do that. But doing it is really hard. Allowing yourself to write something that's imperfect and to keep going to the end and to say, you know what, this opening is terrible and the middle's a mess, but I'm going to get to the end of this short story and I'm going to figure out what it's about. And I can come back and edit it later. And it's, it's the practice of doing that over and over again is the only thing that, that allows you to do it again. Mm -hmm. Like I've interviewed best-selling novelists and and for interview for articles and stuff. And they all tell me the same thing. They're like, you know, it's, I always reach a point where I think I can't do it. (laughs) And when I say, how do you get over it? They say, mostly it's because I've done it before. Yeah. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Doing creative work can be kind of lonely, and that's why we built the Unmistakable Listener Tribe. The tribe is a community for professionals to connect and support each other. Everything is designed to help you grow your business and share what's working and what isn't. And that's true whether you're a business owner or an artist. You'll get access to feedback, live conversations with guests, and so much more. By joining the tribe, you become part of a community of creators who all support each other, and it's completely free. Hopefully, I'll see you there. Visit unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe to join. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe. Julie, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much for having me. It's very exciting. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I came across your story because you wrote in uh, about Story a Day, which we will will talk uh, quite a bit about uh, over the course of our conversation. But I was really intrigued by what you're up to. But before we get into all of that, as you know from having heard the show, I never like to start by asking somebody about their work. And uh, I thought, you know, given your accent, I knew this is where I want to start. And that is where in the world did you grow up and what impacted where you grew up end up having on the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career? Oh, I love that question. Um, I quite often will start when I when I am in a room with people, I'll start by saying I was born in Scotland because um, they get distracted <laughs> by my accent. And it's a little bit yeah. all over the place now because I've lived in different places. So I, I was born in Glasgow in Scotland and my parents very sort of almost immediately took me to the south of England where I, I grew up in Surrey. So it's very nice, you know, near Sandhurst Military Training Academy in the Windsor Castle, which all the Americans have heard about now because you guys love royals. Um, and and so I grew up down there till I was about 10 and then we moved back to Scotland. So that was an interesting experience to have grown up in this very nice sort of the, the heartland of England, the, the bit, the, the BBC bit, right? The bit where you always used to think of the, that BBC accent and everything. And then to move back to Scotland, which I'd always felt like I was Scottish, but I didn't have the accent and I hadn't grown up there. And my parents, my, my whole family was from there. So 
yeah, it's it's kind of odd to have been in this sort of English public school, which is private school world, and then to move back mm. to Scotland, to the west coast of Scotland, which is um, very green, <laughs> mm-hmm. right on the coast, and but going into what Americans would call public school and um, having to make that adjustment and then going to a high school with a very wide catchment area. So there were kids from mining villages and kids from, you know, mansions. And um, during the 80s, when there was lots of industrial action going on and there were minor strikes. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't think, and, and I found, and I was just having this conversation with some some other writers in my community, it's it's really hard to write about the places where you live as an adult because mm-hmm. you you never feel like you're from there the way that you feel like you're from a place mm-hmm. that you lived as a child. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's where I'm And now, of course, I should do the end of the story is where I moved to Pennsylvania. I actually moved to Boston after graduating from Edinburgh University because I was mm-hmm. I was going out with a, a boy and he was he was doing a year or two in Boston. And I was like, I'll come over for the summer and work. And so I did. And then uh, we ended up getting married and staying and he got recruited to come down to Pennsylvania. So it's been a long year that we were supposed to be spending uh-huh. here. Yeah. It's been, yeah, you know, reading. 25. So. Wow. So, you know, the thing I always wonder, particularly about people who are immigrants to the United States, is how they integrate the two cultures. And then also, you know, what are the contrasts that you witness? Uh, you know, I mean, you were educated in another country. I don't know if you have kids, but I always wonder also, like, how you think about education mm. uh, when you've been educated in another country and you contrast that with the United States. And also, uh, the other part of this I always wonder is how you preserve certain aspects of culture and heritage. And, and you know, I think in particular, when you don't, when your parents, uh, if you're an immigrant, like an Indian immigrant, or, you know, many of the others that we've had here, when they don't necessarily speak English as their first language, mm. I think language is the very first thing to go when it comes to preserving heritage and culture, um, because of the fact that we grew up here. Like, I know for a fact, if I don't marry an Indian girl, the first thing to go will be language. Yeah. And that's funny, because I did, I married a Scottish guy. So before my kids went to school, they did talk with Scottish accents, because they sounded like, you know, they learned to talk from us. So they, uh-huh. they had these little Scottish accents and then they went to school and like almost immediately dropped them. But I had been through that myself with my parents having taken me to England. And uh-huh. um, I grew up with an English accent as soon as I went to school. And then very quickly when I w- we moved back to Scotland and went, uh, I went to school there and like within two weeks, my English accent was gone because that was just not, <laughs> not going to work. Um, mm. And, and as an, as someone, I've only recently embraced the term immigrant. I always kind of shied away from that because I hadn't really ever made the decision to emigrate. I sort of married a guy that I liked and ended up living here and I like it here. But it's only been in the last few years that I've sort of embraced that label. And I became a citizen mm. in 2011 and even then I didn't embrace the label immigrant. And so, but I do think about, you think about when you're raising kids here, um, there are things that you're just, your outlook is different. So that stuff's always going to be in the home. I think we're a little more laid back than a lot of American parents were, were much more keen for, our, I mean, and, and a lot of American parents are like this too, but the prevailing culture in the, the Northeast mid-Atlantic region that I'm in is fairly helicoptery. <laughs> mm-hmm. And we're not like that. We're we're much more, you know. Well, you go out, you make your mistakes, and and you you figure it out from there. So we're yeah. and we're not as hung up on um, grades and stuff because we would rather yeah. our kids, um, you know, make mistakes and figure things out. But it's uh, yeah, education is is kind of a big thing for me at the moment because I feel like I've been I'm overeducated. My husband's overeducated. He's got a PhD, did a postdoc. So we're, you know, like we're, we're those overeducated people. And I yeah. feel like I'm floundering the whole time ever since my kids stepped out of the house and went to kindergarten. I just feel like I don't know what I'm doing because the system is so different here. And now I've got yeah. 
um, a kid going into his junior year, which I've only just learned to call it that. <laughs> My eldest is going into junior year and, um, everybody's talking about college. And I'm like, I just don't even, somebody said to me last night, Oh yeah, I did my history degree and I did a politics minor because I realized I didn't have to do a 300 level politics course. I looked at her and I said, I have no idea what that means. And my kid is going to college. <laughs> like, I am just asking everybody. I'm, I'm crowdsourcing my kids' education decisions because I, it's, it's been fantastic for me as someone who was uh -huh. always academic and always bright. You know, I always thought that I had to figure things out for myself. One of the things mm. I have really enjoyed about moving to America has been that if I don't know something, it's not, you know, I've got license now to say, you know what? I don't know. I just don't know this stuff. Can you help me? And that is not something I was good at when I was younger. So that's been very freeing for me. And I'm basically, you know, asking everybody all the time, I, I don't know about that. Tell me. Yeah. And it feels great. It's funny when you describe that, like I remember, but you know, my friend Sarah Peck, who has two young kids, who has been a guest here on the show multiple times, is going to be a speaker at our conference. I remember I, it asked her a lot about parenting mm -hmm. uh, because I don't have kids that are married. And, and she's like, yeah, parenting is just this giant shit show. <laughs> uh, basically, what you do is you tell this kid, hey, we're going to screw you up. And your job is to go spend years in therapy fixing all the things that we screwed up about you. And I just, I, I loved that moment because I thought it was so raw and honest. It's interesting uh, that she you figured know. that out with young kids. Cause I don't think I figured that out until they were <laughs> in early teens and they were starting to like really come back with their own Im impressions of you. And they would, they'll tell you what they think of you. And you're like, oh, uh -huh. okay. All right. <laughs> Well, I, yeah, I mean, don't even get me started on being a teenager. That to me is like the worst, you know, part of being a human as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, tough. I don't, I don't like envy the them. Part about you that never want to go back to. And it's but, tough being a parent of teenagers because you, you empathize yeah. and you can remember it, but you still have to put the foot down sometimes and go, you know, that's not okay. <laughs> hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then. 
right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Uh, you, know, you said something interesting about you being able to write about where you lived as a child uh, because you feel like you're from there. And much like yourself, I moved a lot. Mm. Uh, you know, as a kid, like uh, by the time I, I think I was finished with ninth grade, I'd been in seven different schools. Oh, wow. I lived in three or four different countries. Yeah. Uh, that's only because the town we lived in in Texas, for some stupid reason, I got put in this year where every year we're in a different school. And then I think the year I got to eighth grade, they, they finally mixed six and seventh and eighth grade at not one school. But, you know, and I was back there for the first time in 25 years. Uh, Sometime, you know, I think probably in April, uh, you know, Texas A&M University College Station, Texas, this small little town. And, you know, my, where my parents live now, for my sister, that is very much mm. home. And I told my mom, I said, you know, when I go to College Station, I don't feel like this is a place we left. I feel like this is where I grew up. Like, this is home. Mm. Everything about it feels very nostalgic where I don't have that feeling for where I actually ended up finishing high school only because we were there for three years. But I think the the thing that I wonder about is when you are living in a new place and, and you know, you're saying you don't, it's harder to write about. I wonder why that is like, what is it about, you know, that perception that we have that we don't notice things? Cause I live in this like breathtakingly beautiful place, but I probably have written far more about college station yeah. um, in my writing than I ever have about living in Encinitas. It's, it's a, that's a, it's a really interesting question because like I live in Pennsylvania and I, I'm a history major. So I was always kind of snooty about, you know, American history and how it's not very long before I came here. Mm-hmm. But once I got here, <laughs> like it's only 250 years, what are you talking about? Um, but yeah. once I got here and I'm living in a small town that's an old steel town and it was, you know, not too far from the um, the Conestoga Wagon Trail. And, you know, th- there's a ton of history here. And there's, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a ton of history here and there's a ton of um, families who've just lived here for generations. And so mm. uh, being someone who's a fan of accents and dialect and stuff like that, I'm very aware of the fact that I can't do the local accent properly. And it drives me crazy. But it also means that I don't know, it's, I don't know how to use the words you know, the, the slang words. And I don't know if I was writing about teenagers or if I was writing about even a woman my age who grew up here, I wouldn't know all the little things like, where did you go on a Saturday afternoon? Um, what was it like to be in sixth grade? I was never in sixth grade. I never, you know, it, it feels like it would be more inauthentic in a way than to write historical fiction. And maybe it's, maybe mm. it's just that I don't want to get judged by people who know that I'm wrong. <laughs> like historical, uh-huh. historical um, people who lived in the 17th century don't exist. And people who live in my science fiction fantasy worlds can't come and tell me I'm getting it wrong. But if I try and write about, you know, 2019 Pennsylvania, there's tons of people who can tell me I'm getting it wrong. So maybe it's ego. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's, um, fear of of getting it wrong and looking like an idiot but i think it's also yeah it's just that stuff that you just don't know as much because when you move somewhere as an adult Uh you're busy and you've got obligations and responsibilities and you don't have all that sort of downtime to just sit and look around and try and get bored and fill your time with stuff and think deep thoughts you're kind of running from one thing to the other a lot of the time and that's you know why what you do and what i'm trying to do as well is important to try and help people to create that that space mm. to just yeah daydream again uh-huh. well I, I think that i i noticed it even in my town especially because i'm about to move now and i was thinking about all the places in two years that you know i've just i've driven by a thousand mm. times i was like how have an, there's a, an italian restaurant literally that is down the street from my house i've been meaning to check it out i went there for the first time a week ago and i've lived here for almost three years <laughs> And I thought it was so strange. And I remember we had this guest, Dave Vanderveen, who said that, you know, he, you have to keep changing these channels in your brain because otherwise you get stuck in patterns you don't like. And, and he said that, you know, his dad told him, he's like, you know, I, I start, start every day by shaving a different side of my face. Huh. Uh, 
which I, I thought was really interesting because we, you know, we, like we're pretty much stuck in patterns. Like we take the same route to work. Mm-hmm. We go to the same coffee shops. I know this because this is me. Like if you become a creature of habit and I, I never realized how, you know, that just those little changes of going somewhere you haven't been like in your own town, suddenly make your own town this place of, of you know, discovery and, and creativity, no matter where you live. Yeah, it's funny. I just read an article about um, people who don't sleep on the same side of the bed with their, uh, with their partner every night. And this huh. created a huge stir. People were like, what? What are you talking about? And uh, yeah, and then and we went away for the weekend and I realized my husband and I do that when we go on vacation, we swap sides quite often. Mm-hmm. Um, but in That's our general life, you know, you've got your stuff and you... <laughs> You got your stuff there and you want to know where everything is. And, and, and yep. it's the same. We go out for a restaurant, we go out for dinner, we go to the same restaurant all the time. Uh-huh. We get into yeah. these patterns. But then you can go. And our, our little town actually is awesome because um, it's gone from being this really rundown steel town where the steel mill closed in 1987. Mm. And then there was like 10, 12 years of like really hard times. And it's, re- it's being reborn as sort of like a, an artsy um, brew pub festival little town. And so during the, the, during the year, there's, um, a ton of little festivals they'll close off the main street for. And, you know, you can go down one Saturday and all of a sudden, you know, this street's closed off and you walk around and you're like, oh, wow, look, you know, um, I didn't even notice that little, um, vintage clothing store, but they're sponsoring a, a flea market. So now I'm, now I'm seeing it. And it's that the town changes quite a lot around you. So it's one of the reasons I like living here because it brings in different people and you see it from a whole new perspective. Yeah. Well, it's funny because, you know, we're having this conversation and people are like, what the hell does this have to do with what she does for work? <laughs> uh, so I, I wonder, you know, draw the, the connection uh, for me about how, you know, all this brings you to a story a day. Well, Connections are all, yeah, writing is all about connections and writing is all about putting new experiences together. I mean, the art in general is about is about holding up um, a vision of life that makes people look at it slightly differently and, and get out of those ruts and those routines. So for me, it's fantastic to live in a town like this because it gives me tons of material and to live in a, and to live here, you know, as an immigrant and, and to be able to ask people questions, you know, why are you doing that that way? Um, you know, why do you go there? Why do you go to the shore every year? You know, what does that, why do people from this town go down to the Jersey shore every year? I can ask those questions as a bit of an outsider. So what I do is I I always wanted to be a writer and I so I started I was failing and I had these two young children and that is not a it's a wonderful time but it's not like an intellectually satisfying time if you're staying at home with a 2-year-old and a 1-year-old or a 3-year-old and a 2-year-old. So I was getting a little bit desperate and I wasn't making time for writing, which I know is something that feeds me. And I was trying to do all these other creative things like jewellery making, which I was terrible at, and knitting, which I'm all right at. Um, but it wasn't, I still. I was still sitting around daydreaming. And I. one day I had this uh, revelation that if I was sitting around daydreaming, clearly I was still making up stories in my head and maybe I should write some of them down and actually have something to show for all this time I was staring out the window. But I couldn't figure out how to do it. I couldn't figure out how to give myself permission to take time away from this young family and my husband who was working outside the home. And how could I ask for time for my creativity, which wasn't going to bring in money? Um, I just needed to be writing and I hadn't done it for long enough. You know, it's been so long since I'd done it. So I was following lots of challenges online, uh, Illustration Friday and uh, 100words.net and NaNoWriMo. And I was... I was kind of mad because I, I, I never, I didn't feel like I could write a novel and I was kind of angry mm-hmm. that nobody had done anything for short story writers. Like there wasn't a month where you could do a challenge for short story writers. And as I sat there getting more and more angry about it, I thought, oh, <laughs> maybe I should do that. So I did. So I said, um, I, I was, I was frustrated for one thing that the, there was no community for short story writers and no challenge. But the other thing I was frustrated about was that I couldn't finish a single story. And in my brain, it seemed like if I couldn't finish a single story, then giving myself a challenge of finishing a story every day for a month would be much easier or make sense somehow. So I started telling people about it and they started telling people about it. And within about a month, I had about 100 people who had said, oh, yeah, I'll do that with you. At which point I had to actually do it. So I I launched this (laughs) challenge in 2010 and I said, hey, 
story day may let's do it. And, um, you know, like I say, almost a hundred people joined me and we just went and I, I slapped up a website and I started putting prompts up in case anyone needed them. And this community started to, to develop in the comments and in the, the forums that I had put up of people just like doing this writing that they had been putting off and doing it with abandon. And everybody was, every year it's the same. Everybody's really giddy at the beginning. They're like, I can't believe I'm going to try and do this. And then the first day they post, they're like, I did it. I wrote a story today. And it gets a little bit more difficult in week two. But once you get through Uh that barrier, you've started to form relationships with other people who are doing it with you. And you've started to figure out, you know, what time of day works for you, how to get permission, how to give yourself permission and how to inform the people you live with that you will be taking this hour to go away and do the thing. And at that Mm. point, the people in your life have started to notice that when you go away and do the thing, you come back downstairs and you're much happier and you're much easier to live with. And so if Uh people can get to like the middle of the month and still be writing, um, they will make it to the end. And then they're just like, everybody's ecstatic. And you'll learn so much about your own um, patterns of creativity and how to make space for it in your life. Um, it's it's just a fantastic experience. And I'm, I'm always so excited to see what people learn as they go through. Yeah. I want to go back to this, this idea of giving yourself permission. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's a tough one for people. Yeah. I, I know this because I think that, that there are you know, multiple aspects of giving yourself permission. And even Danny Shapiro wrote about this in her uh, just breathtaking book, Still Writing, where, you know, she said, giving yourself permission is one of those things that you have to do every day. And and the funny thing is with, with something like writing, right, there's no sort of certification or, you know, you don't get a, a medical degree that says, hey, now you have a license to do this thing. Uh, you know, yeah. And so I think there's this sort of, oh, who am I to do this? And one thing I always you know say is you have to give yourself permission to suck as well. Yes. And so I yeah. wonder, you know, what are the barriers that people run into with this? Uh, how do they get over them? One of the reasons I wanted to do this month long challenge is because of that, like the permission, it, it's finding a way to make space in your life for it. But it also the permission to suck is huge because we've anybody who's got the urge to be a writer probably has an experience in their life where they were writing stories, probably in elementary school or middle school or primary school or whatever you called it. Um, And a teacher saw their story and went, wow, this is really good. You're a really good writer. And then you go into the upper levels of school and you start to analyse all the brilliant writers and you start to analyse the edited versions and published versions of their 14th draft of something and you critique it and almost everybody I know stops writing around that age. And if you go and study at, at university, unless you're doing a creative writing course where someone's forcing you to write, yeah. people fall away in droves. And I think because I think it's because the way that we analyse literature, we don't think about the sucky first draft. Um, I think that's one of Anne, Anne Lamott's mm-hmm. greatest gifts to the creative world is the phrase, the shitty first draft. Yeah. Um, it's And it's easy to say it and it's easy to understand intellectually uh-huh. that you need to do that. But doing it is really hard. Allowing yourself to write something that's imperfect and to keep going to the end and to say, you know what, this opening is terrible and the middle's a mess, but I'm going to get to the end of this short story and I'm going to figure out what it's about and I can come back and edit it later. And it's, it's the practice of doing that over and over again is the only thing that, that allows you to do it again. Mm-hmm. Like I've interviewed best-selling um, novelists and, and for interview for articles and stuff. And they all tell me the same thing. They're like, you know, it's, I always reach a point where I think I can't do it. <laughs> and when I say, how do you get over it? They say, mostly it's because I've done it before. Yeah. So, you know, giving yourself permission to suck is fine to say, mm-hmm. but actually doing it over and over again is tough. So, yeah, I put story to, a day together to give people a venue in which they can they can do that very thing. Like I say to people, you are not going to write 31 good stories. Mm-hmm. You might write one good story. You might write two if you're lucky, yeah. but you'll write, you know, and, and I let people make their own rules. They don't have to write 31. They can decide to do three a week or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I say, you know, you, your stories aren't 
write at a pace that sort of almost guarantees that you're not going to be able to write well uh-huh. and it will be so freeing. Well, yeah, I mean, I, everybody knows I write a thousand words a day and I always say, look, I'm not a great writer. I just write a lot. Some of it happens to be worth reading. Uh, and I, I think that the there's a really hilarious line in the movie With Honors with Joe Pesci where uh, and Brendan Fraser where, you know, he, Brendan Fraser is a senior at, at Harvard and Joe Pesci somehow gets his hands on this kid's senior thesis. He's a homeless guy living in the you know basement of a library and he starts throwing all the pages of the thesis into the fire. And, uh, you know, Ben and Frazier is like, look, I'll give you whatever you want. And the, the Joe Pesci basically says, man, he's like, this stuff is really coming out the wrong end. That always stayed with me. I said, yeah, that's why they call it a shitty first draft. Yep. <laughs> uh, I, I think and quantity, sorry. quantity, um, well, I was just gonna say, you know, I read in, I think Julia Cameron's, but the, um, uh, the creative, uh, gosh, the artist way, um, artist way. Yeah. Thank you. Um, you know, she says quantity. I think that was the first place I discovered this idea of I'll handle the quantity. Mm-hmm. Um, the quality will follow. Mm-hmm. And I just hated that. I was, I was mad at her. Like I put the book down and I was like, what are you talking about? I'm a writer. I'm the one who's going to be making it good. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was only when I surrendered to the idea that no, you can't save it. You can't save up all your creativity and all your best ideas because you get more creative when you're being creative and mm-hmm. you you see the connections and you put the ideas together when you're actually doing the work, not when you're thinking about doing the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. 
Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. What have been the kinds of stories that people have chosen to tell as a result of this? I, I really wonder because, um, you know, I mean, I think I've seen writing be this tool for all sorts of things. I mean, uh, what James Pennebaker at, at UT Austin has done work around the fact that this can be an incredibly healing tool uh, when you're at mm -hmm. about painful experiences. Uh, so I wonder, what are the kinds of stories that people have told in your community? We get all kinds of stories and I, I don't require people to publish the stories anywhere because, you know, they're, they're meant to be shitty first drafts and they're meant to, maybe they're going to brush them up and send them out to, to markets and try and get them published. And they have done, which I'm, which is always thrilling. It's not the purpose of what I do, but I'm always thrilled when I hear that one of the stories has, has found its home. So I've seen some of the stuff that people do and, um, we get, I mean, everything is as many people as, as turn up are the different types of stories and, and, Within that, you'll find people writing one type of thing at the beginning of the month and a totally different type of thing at the end of the month. Um, they might, some people do use it for writing backstories for novels and for writing memoir. And some people are just playing and seeing what comes out. We get science fiction stories. We get um, really sort of painful, uh, personal tragedy stories. Um, we get comedy and um weird little weird little th creatures like um one the first year we did it somebody's told a story in tweets which was pretty new at the time and uh it was this, this story of somebody who was out in the wilderness and, and the tweets were getting more and more you know desperate as time went on and that was that was really fascinating to see that kind of thing. Because the wonderful thing about short stories is that you don't have to stick to the narrative form. You mm -hmm. can yeah. you can do all kinds of weird and wonderful things with them and, and people do. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we get everything. We get everything from that sort of therapeutic memoir, digging into your past writing uh -huh. to wild flights of fancy. Well, I think uh, Trevor Noah, if I remember correctly, literally published a book that was nothing but President Trump's tweets. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> I think would be hilarious to read. Uh, but, you know, so I think that, that really the other thing that really struck me about you, what you said when you wrote in was that many of these people aren't doing, you know, this thing for a living. They're just doing it for its own sake. And I, I want to talk about this because in one way, I feel that on some level, some of my work is a disservice to that narrative because of the people that I bring to the show who have all found a way to make a living off of their art. And in, mm -hmm. in one way, despite writing a book, that that's not necessarily always what's necessary. Um, I definitely think that I've perpetuated this mantra to some degree that the art is only worth making if you are getting some sort of external result from it. Uh, and I, I don't think that's just limited to me. I think that a lot of the online world has created that mm -hmm. narrative between books like the four hour work week, um, you know, and, and you know, books like escape from Google nation, like all these, and these are all friends of mine, like people who I've had as guests, people right. whose work I, I truly admire and look up to. But this is something that I've always wondered about is that, you know, we, we, this is a narrative that perpetuated. And I think that a lot of people are not making their art because they don't think it's going to lead anywhere. And, as a result, I think that we are missing out on a lot of really, really powerful creative work uh, that does just doesn't exist because of that. And also for people, the kind of reward that would come from it. So I, I kind of want to turn that to, over to you and, and see, you know, what your view on this is. Yeah. And we talk about this all the time in my community because we do all have, you know, we, we all need to pay the bills mm -hmm. um, and we all want to be doing work that is um, meaningful to us. And for a lot of people that meant because they were interested in reading and writing, a lot of them went into teaching, which is, you know, extremely admirable. It doesn't pay terribly well and you don't, and it's long hours and things like that. So they're struggling with, with that, you know, taking time away from family and jobs 
to do their creative work. Mm -hmm. So I, I find that a lot of what I write for Story a Day is me sort of reminding people that we are more than um, just a, a collection of bills that need to be paid, where we need to be filled. We need to do this work that we're here for. I'm lucky that I come from a country where the uh, the amateur was uh, a strong part of the culture. Like everybody had a, a thing that they did. And it wasn't just when I moved to America, I noticed that US parents tend to, uh, US grownups, if they, if they have children, tend to give over all of their interests in favour of running their kids to things. Mm-hmm. Whereas when I was growing up, and I think Britain's gone the same way a little bit too, but when I was growing up, there was a culture where everybody was, was you know, you had a an interest and you'd go and take night classes or you'd have your pot, you know, the men quite often would have their potting shed and their vegetable garden and they would go and play bowl, lawn bowls. And it was just expected that you had lots of things that you did for fun and because you wanted to. Mm-hmm. And your job was funding your life rather than being your life. So that was a big cultural difference between where I grew up and when I grew up and the world that I live in now. Mm-hmm. And so I, it's not, it's, I think it's still a little more like that in other countries, but I, I, I think that um, the US has this culture of go, go, go and earn and earn and you can do anything you want to, but you got to work hard and, 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 and we do, at, I mean, when you meet someone and you ask them, what do you do? They tell you what their job is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And so it's hard. It's hard to push against that culture and say, I'm doing this thing. And, um, oh, how do you make money at that? People say to me, you know, how do you make money at that? And I'm, I'm like, well, now I run some courses and things like that. But, you know, f- for a long time, it was just something I did for, for the love of it. Mm-hmm. And as far as my short stories go, I mean, I, I write them and I put together little collections and I share them with family and friends, but I don't spend an awful lot of time trying to get them published by, you know, the New Yorker or by Shimmer magazine or, you know, I don't spend a lot of time doing that because that's not what I'm in this for. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I feel really bad about that as the, the sort of figurehead of the community. I'm like, oh, maybe I should have more publication credits. Mm-hmm. And then I remember, you know, maybe I'm actually being a better figurehead if I don't have a lot of, you know, if I'm just doing this because this is something I I am a better person because of. Yeah. But it's hard because, you, you like I say, you're pushing against a culture that... Um, you know, I knit and people will look at something I've knitted and they'll say, oh, you should sell those. (laughs) Exactly. Do you have any idea how many hours went into this and how much I would have to charge for this? And, you know, just say it's nice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I I remember, I think it was on an interview with my friend Jordan Harbinger, who uh, runs, you know, a very popular podcast that's been around for a long time, has a massive audience. And one of the things that he said, he said, people don't have hobbies anymore. Like, yeah. you yep. know, they just have side hustles. Professionalize it. You side know, hustle. Right, you, know, yeah. you know, what happened to hobbies? You know, the things that we do just because we enjoy them. Uh, now, coming from a country where, again, you know, the amateur thing was was uh, lionized, but uh-huh. also work culture was very different and you it was sort of frowned upon to try and do too much and like to show off. So it nobody had a second job. In mm-hmm. Britain, and if you did, you were taxed like at the highest income rate on that second job, regardless yeah. of what you earned. So it was very much discouraged to strive, and so I'm I'm thrilled with like I listen to um, Chris Gillibo's side hustle school, and I'm like mm-hmm. I'm thrilled that people who want to make a little extra money, it's out there for them, and they can, they can go for it. And there's tons of people who are sharing information about how you can do that. But my problem is, if you feel like you can't just have a hobby and you must have a side hustle. And yeah. that is the sort of prevailing culture that we've, we've created. So I think you are um, standing up as a, as a bulwark against that. So good. <laughs> yeah. And you know, the, the funny thing is it's, it's also easy for me to say that, right. Uh, from my vantage point, somebody made this argument with me before and said like, yeah, well, it's easy for you to say that considering you just got paid to write a damn book by one of the biggest publishers in the world. And, and and then, you know, but somebody else made the point and said, yeah, but you did this long before anybody was willing to do that. I was going to ask, how long were you doing this before you got to that point? Like, seven, like before there was any promise. Yeah. I mean, right? years before there was any promise. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, it's. And if it hadn't gone that way and you hadn't got the book deal, would you still be doing this? Probably. Uh, Yeah. yeah. I mean, the thing is that I I realized that, yeah, and everybody I talked to that that I've sat as guests here, friends who have, you know, really just prolific bodies of work, most unanimously, it's like, you know, these people would be doing this thing even if nobody was paying attention because it wasn't about getting attention. It never was. And, I think that that to me is one of the blessings and curses of social media is that this thing mm-hmm. has caused us to confuse attention with affection and attention with accomplishment. Uh, whereas, you know, attention is a byproduct in my mind. Yeah. And there's also the complicating factor of like, I do believe that people creating art deserve to get paid for what they're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, so I don't want to say, oh, you should just do it for the love of it. Like if yeah. you're creating something that people want, you should absolutely get paid and you should get paid fairly. You should get paid. You People should think about like all of the ripples of the, in their lives of a fantastic book or a fantastic piece of art and, you know, pay the, the creator in accordance with the value that you get from it. But you can't jump straight to that stage normally. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's got to be, and it's got to be okay for people to just, like my husband plays the guitar. He could play in a band. He's really good, but he doesn't, he does it for fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, that's okay. Yeah. 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 Like I said, I think it, it we've, in one way we've kind of complicated this narrative because I think <laughs> that people are like, Oh, I get to listen to all this cool stuff. I get to discover all these cool people. I get to learn from them. And this is like, you know, a model of possibility. And yet, in my mind, those same models of possibility also create a great deal of dissatisfaction where there probably was none to begin with. Or we just were good at shoving it down. You know, I think about previous generations who had to work a lot harder than a lot of us for what they had. Mm -hmm. And there there wasn't time. I mean, and it exists today. I'm not saying it doesn't exist today, but, you know, a lot of people don't have any free time. And there's, there are phases and seasons in our lives where it's just really, really hard to find time for the work that, or I shouldn't even say work, for the activities that mm-hmm. make us more fulfilled. Yeah. And it can be really hard. And we're lucky if we get to combine that with um, earning a living. But there's also, when you start to earn a living from the thing that was your avocation, there's a different... Um, relationship to it, which I don't know that people talk about enough. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. everybody talks about, oh, you should go professional. You should, you know, and, but when you go professional, it's no longer, you're no longer just creating it for yourself. You're no longer uh-huh. creating the thing that you want to and doing, necess- possibly doing your best work. You know, mm-hmm. you're, you're dancing you're a dancing monkey for someone else. It's, <laughs> Whether it's your huge audience. I, mean, or- I, I can tell you firsthand that once you get paid to do your creative work, it fundamentally changes how you do that work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to be very mindful about how you're being perceived in every situation. You know, like I, I remember I got some bad feedback from a speaking engagement. Granted, I got raving feedback from that same speaking engagement. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and that, that's kind of how it goes, I think, with feedback. But you kind of realize, you know, like I participated in this project where, you know, it was on TV and I, I told people, I was like, look, I'm not in a situation where I can just speak my mind without consequences, uh, even though our president doesn't seem to understand that, but that's yeah. a whole other tirade. Uh, you know, like I was like, look, when I say something, everything I say basically implicates every single person who's ever bet on me professionally, whether it's yeah. an investor, whether it's a literary agent, whether it's a publisher, because everything I do is a reflection of the choices that they make. So like you're no longer in this position where your actions are only influencing the consequences of your life, but they're influencing everybody else as well. And I think that is mm-hmm. one of the strangest things about getting paid to do creative work because what got you there in the first place was not doing any of those things. Yeah. And I've read a lot of interviews and I've, you know, like I say, I've interviewed a bunch of writers and um, they talk about that, you know, like uh, being able to do your work for yourself and mm-hmm. then having to do it, you know, in, in public is, yeah. is a very, very different beast. Well, I think that's, you know, one of the things, you know, audience of one, my, my other book was spreading very slowly, but then it kind of just picked up steam at word of mouth. And we've been doing very little promotion of marketing of this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
And for some reason, it just started, it seems to have struck a chord. And, and, you know, I, I think about something Ryan Holiday said that, you know, he said, you know, you want something that is a perennial seller. And he said, also, if your happiness is dependent on how this thing sells, he said, that's a recipe for profound disappointment because you're handing mm. your happiness over to something to which you have no control over. Yeah. There's a, a guy who, who writes and does podcast, Mark McGuinness, who has a book about that. And it's about motivation for creative people. I think that's actually the yeah. title. And he talks about the difference between that extrinsic or external mm -hmm. motivation, which is that which you have no control over mm -hmm. and the intrinsic motivation, which is the only thing that you can really, yeah. um, the only thing you control. You Like everything is, is like, <laughs> My, my parents still say, oh yeah, when you have your bestseller. And I'm like, well, that's probably, you know, if I ever, I'm going to get rich from this business, it's not going to be from, it's unlikely to be from a bestseller because there's just so much luck involved in that. You know, yeah. sure, maybe I'll write something and someone will make a Hollywood movie and it'll win Oscars and I'll get paid fabulously. But I'm not banking on that, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's not, that's not, you know, my end result. Of, and that's not going to be my, my goal. And the only thing that's going to make me happy. <laughs> well, I think even for people who, like you said, achieve that, right, there's luck involved. And every, you know, I think mm -hmm. it would be irresponsible for any one of us who's had this opportunity to say, oh, yeah, like it's all due solely to my hard work and my work ethic and my artistic brilliance. <laughs> that would be total bullshit. It's You'd be not. a sociopath if you said that. Yeah, I mean, I'm like, I still to this day think it's incredibly lucky that an editor at Penguin happened to be browsing Medium one day and saw my article out of the hundreds of thousands she could have seen that day. And uh, the fact that like you graduated at that moment in time where, uh, you know, a solid career wasn't necessarily going to fall into your lap. So you're, mm -hmm. you know, it, it was the, a moment in time which gave you this opportunity to look around and go, well, what am I going to do? And, you know, how, yeah, how do you do it? Timing, it, it, there's an amazing TED talk with Bill Gross, who's the founder of a, a startup incubator called Idea Lab. I, you might have heard of it. Um, some mm. of our listeners, depending on how old they are, may not know it. But um, Idea Lab was basically where City Search, uh, CarsDirect.com, all this stuff was born uh, at Idea Lab. It was basically Y Combinator prior to Y Combinator and mm. probably much more expensive to run. And of course, you know, it went bust sometime after the dot-com bubble because every one of their companies was one of these is dot-coms. But one of, one of the things that he talks about in this TED Talk, he gets on stage and he, he analyzed something like 250 startups. And he said there was only one common pattern between all the ones that succeeded. And he was like, what's that? Timing. Mm -hmm. Like the same company, if they had started at another time, wouldn't have been successful. Like, think about it. Why isn't Friendster Facebook? You yeah. Know? Uh, when I worked and, and, and during the dot-com bubble, I, I was right before it, I was working for a, a small startup and we did a thing where we uh, were the first company to offer people print-on-demand services direct to authors. And mm -hmm. it was, you know, it was a great idea. And I remember one day towards the end of my time there, um, mm -hmm. after we'd had a big round of funding, but it just wasn't growing fast enough. And mm -hmm. it was right before the dot-com bubble burst. And I remember my boss saying to me, you know, this is going to work but it might not work for another 10 years. Yeah. And, you know, 10 years later, there's Amazon with CreateSpace and K right. Kindle, you know, KDP. And, um, and you know, I look at it, I'm like, he was right. It was almost 10 years to the day that that mm -hmm. really began to saturate popular culture. And of course they had resources oh. and, you know, yeah. whatever else. But um, yeah, so some well, of this time. When we started the podcast, somebody had said podcasting was dead. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but uh, blogs are dead, emails dead, yeah. everything's always dying. <laughs> well, I mean, and you know, I'm Books very are dead. Short, nobody reads short now. stories. Yeah, we're the beneficiaries of a ten year head start. I mean, that's mm. that's really all that is. You know, is good timing. But uh, wow. So, one other question for you about this: um, How has this creative outlet informed um, your parenting? Oh, that's a very interesting question. It's kind of a circular thing I think because when my kids were um not <laughs> easy mm -hmm. they've never been sort of like mellow kids so everything that we did has always been like um you had to entertain them or you had to like keep them busy and keep them occupied, even potty training. And I have boys so that's like notoriously harder with boys anyway. So I remember before I even started Story a Day, sitting, trying to keep my firstborn on the potty until he had done his thing. And the only way I could keep him there was to tell him outrageous stories, make up stories. 
And I used to have to tell them stories, try and get them to go to sleep, which they weren't a big fans of either. And we would go out for walks and like we'd walk into town because we're in this, you know, town that was just starting to revitalise. Excuse me. And we'd go for walks and we would be like, right, we're not taking the car. We're going to walk down. And they would start complaining. So we'd tell them stories and we'd be making stuff up as we were walking just to stop them from whining. Um, So in a way, they informed my writing and they informed my creativity. Um, And then I think that as a stay-at-home mum, it was important for them to see me doing something that wasn't just being mum. It was important for me to have them see me as something more than that. So when I started going away and doing story a day and um, the first year, I sort of, the first night I sort of looked at my husband and I'm like, right, I'm going to go upstairs and I'm going to be writing and it's going to be like an hour and I don't want to be disturbed. He's, He's like, fine, go off you go. But for me to walk away from the family and do that felt like um, a big gamble. And then when I came back and, uh, and they saw me again, everything was fine. And over the years, it's become something like they'll tell their friends that their mom's a writer and they'll tell their teachers that their mom's a writer. And, you know, it's not like I have a shelf full of published novels, but Mm -hmm. they, to them, I am a writer and they are storytellers too. So a couple of years ago, my eldest went away to a storytelling camp, um, which was just fantastic for me to watch. I was really jealous, actually. I was like, can I come? Um, so they tell stories and they, you know, they write at school. They're always happy when they're writing. They're also little scientists like their dads, like their dad. But um, so my, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if, if the actual writing has informed the parenting the act of writing has, mm-hmm. um, you, as a creative person, you tend to be looking deeply at the human condition. Yeah. And so that's something that it's, it's hard to be a hard ass parent when you're constantly thinking about all the variables, like, well, you know, I understand why you're upset about that. And I understand why you're acting out about that. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, I don't know. That's a really interesting question. But I think it's I think it's circular. Wow. Wow. Um, well, this has been really, really uh, just wonderful. And uh, I love conversations like this because, you know, there's no like when I look at it, I'm like, OK, this is one of those conversations where everybody I think will take something very different from this. Uh, so I want to finish with my, my final question, which I know you've heard me ask. And that is, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Oh, I should have done my homework. I should have, you know, I should have prepared something, shouldn't I? But what do I think it is that makes somebody unmistakable? Well, I think everyone, at the risk of quoting Monty Python, is an individual, right? Everybody is the sum of their life's experiences. And this is something I talk about with my writing community, because everybody worries about being original enough to create Mm -hmm. an original piece of art. And I say to them, you can't help but create an original piece of art because every thought you have is is the result of every experience that you've had in your life, every place you've lived, every friend you've had, every enemy you've had, um, every book you've read. The things that you hear in your head all day that you think are just boring, mundane, normal things, if you write them down or if you paint them or draw them, Nobody else has ever represented the world that way before, and nobody else has ever seen it represented that way before. So what makes somebody unmistakable is, I guess, giving themselves the permission to trust that their thoughts and their work and their ideas are good enough, have merit, can contribute to the world, will create ripples and need to be heard. I always Mm. say to people, the world needs your story because it's, you're the only one who can tell it and you're the only one who can do it that way. And nobody else has ever seen it before. I love that. That has to be one of my favorite answers I've ever heard to that question. (laughs) Well, thank you. I think about this stuff a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can't thank you enough for uh, taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, uh, and everything that you're up to? Thank you. Yeah, this has been so much fun. Um, and what such a 
amazing deep conversation. It's so great. Um, thank you for, for running this. But um, I, they can find more about Story a Day at storyaday.org. And we're, uh, we do two challenges a year, one in May, one in September, but there's stuff going on all year around writing prompts and all kinds of stuff there. So that's the best place to find us. I'm also on Twitter at Story a Day May. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.